There's a fascinating passage from President Obama's second inaugural address that has stuck with me since I first heard him deliver it. On that cold January day in 2013, which in a beautiful synchronicity also happened to me, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, President Obama said, We, the people, declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal, is the star that guides us still, just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls, through Selma, and through Stonewall. With that memorable phrasing, our nation's first black president inscribed into the annals of U.S. history the formulation, Seneca Falls, Selma, Stonewall. That alliterative illusion points us to an overlapping series of social justice movements in our country regarding the significance of these particular references. Dr. Melissa Harris Perry, an African-American political scientist, pundit, and Unitarian Universalist, said that when the president name-checked the watershed moments of women's rights, of civil rights, and of LGBT equality, he offered a powerful moment of official recognition. Seneca Falls is a city in New York that was the site of an important uh, early women's rights convention in 1848. Selma is a city in Alabama that was the beginning point of three attempted protest marches in 1965 for African-American voting rights, which, in which the nonviolent protesters were met with violent, brutal, and bloody opposition. Stonefall was a Greenwich Village bar in New York City where in 1969 members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community rose up against discriminatory police raids and launched the modern fight for LGBTQ plus rights in the U.S. Again, in President Obama's words, we the people declare that the most evident of truths that all people are created equal is the star that guides us still just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls, through Selma, and Stonewall. It matters which stories we choose to tell. It matters that a U.S. president chose to highlight and connect the struggles for gender equality, for racial justice, and for LGBT rights. And learning to better tell the stories of Seneca Falls, Selma, Stonewall, that's all part of, and telling them as part of fulfilling the promises set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that is a powerful and a vital narrative. These and other such social justice stories, they can shape us. They can shape our society, our world, uh, the one we hope to create for future generations, a, a world of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. And since we are approaching the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, I will not be here for that. It's in a few weeks, so you're getting it now. Uh, I'd like to invite us to spend a few minutes this morning reflecting on that particular historic event, inviting us to learn to tell that particular part of the story better, more robustly, as well as to explore some of the reverberations within our own Unitarian Universalist movement. To appreciate the significance of Stonewall, it helps to keep in mind some of what it was like to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender in this country at that time. In the summer of 1969, homosexual sex was illegal in every state except Illinois. Go Illinois. Uh, (laughs) Illinois also just passed sweeping abortion rights legislation. Again, go Illinois. All right. 
Uh, but back again in 69, not one law, federal, state, or local, protected gay men or lesbians from being fired or denied housing. There were no openly LGBT politicians. No television show had any identifiably LGBT characters. When Hollywood made a film with a major homosexual character, that character was always killed or committed suicide. Have any of you seen the documentary The Celluloid Closet? Anybody? Celluloid Closet? I see a few hands. It is incredibly powerful in an exploration of that. I I recommend that to you, The Celluloid Closet. Uh, There were no openly LGBT police officers, public school teachers, doctors, lawyers. uh, No political party had a gay caucus. That was the background against which ordinary LGBT folks, uh, in response to yet another insulting and harassing police raid on a gay bar, reached their limit and rose up. The Stonewall Inn at 53 Christopher Street in New York City had previously been a restaurant. It actually used to be a stable, and then it was a restaurant. It was a few different things, and it closed after a fire, and the son of a New York mafia boss bought it and slapped a coat of black paint on the burned wood and reopened it as a gay club in 1967. They used to brag that they'd done it all for $3,500, and it was trying to really do it on the cheap. Um, So that was two years before the uprising. The mafiosos who owned the bar were extremely socially conservative. In the words of one Stonewall employee, they liked our money and they hated our guts. It was not a great setup for many reasons. I could tell you a lot about the conditions were not great uh, at Stonewall in many ways. Uh, But in the late 1960s, there were few options for LGBT socializing, even in New York City. So, um, the, so although the entrance of the Stonewall Inn, it was run like a speakeasy during Prohibition. There's like a little sliding thing, and they had to recognize your face to let you in. Uh, uh, and even though the mafia paid off the police, the police still raided illegal bars like the Stonewall, um, an average of about once a month. Uh, the payoff money didn't prevent raids. What it did usually buy was two things. One, advanced notice that a raid was going to happen so there'd be less money, less liquor on the premises to be confiscated, and the mafia would make sure their people were not working the bar at that time. Uh, and two, raids would be done during less busy times, so typically on weekdays or before midnight on weekends. So part of why that night, Saturday, June 28, 1969, was different was that it was election season and politicians were pressuring the police to show that they were tough on crime. So the police raided the Stonewall Inn at 1 a.m. on the first summer Saturday morning that was like really pleasant and people were really wanting to be out and about. That meant there was a large crowd of customers present. It was also the last in a series of raids on gay bars, all in the same neighborhood, and it was the second raid that week at the Stonewall Inn. There's a lot to say about the Stonewall Uprising, which played out over a series of days. I'll limit myself for now to share just a few vignettes. The first hostile act outside the club occurred when a police officer shoved one of the drag queens, who turned and struck the officer over the head with her purse. The cop clubbed her, and a wave of anger passed through the crowd, which immediately showered the police with boos and catcalls, followed by a cry to turn over the paddy wagon. In the words of one eyewitness, the cops were used to the cringing and disorganization of gay crowds, and they just kind of snorted off when they heard that. But this time, the crowd didn't disperse. 
In fact, the opposite happened in a fascinating reminder of a time before cell phones. People sprinted to the nearest payphones to call their friends to come down and see what was happening at the Stonewall. In the meantime, the next bar patron to be taken from the Stonewall was a lesbian. She was, shall we say, formidable. Uh, she, uh, name has been lost to history, probably at least in part because she didn't want to get in trouble with the police. Uh, but this is what happened. There were three or four policemen on her. She fought them all the way from the Stonewall uh, Inn's entrance to a police car. And when she was in that waiting police car, she slid out the other side and battled the police all the way back to the Stonewall Inn's entrance. That all took about five or ten minutes, according to eyewitnesses. And then as she got back to the entrance, she yelled, Why don't you guys do something? And that set the whole crowd berserk. That was the turning point. And the Stonewall uprisings have gone down in history as the first time that thousands of LGBTQ folk went out into the street to protest for equal treatment under the law. The next year, on the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, was the first Christopher Street Liberation Day march. And on Sunday, June 30th, 2019, there was a massive pride march in New York's... uh, And in Sunday, June 30th, 2019, this year, there'll be a massive pride march in New York City to celebrate the 50th anniversary. And although there's much work yet to be done to achieve full equality for LGBTQ plus citizens of this country, as well as globally, uh, we are raised up on the shoulders of those participants in the Stonewall Uprisings 50 years ago who helped catalyze the modern movement for LGBT equality. I also wanted to say a few words about the history of LGBTQ plus rights in our own UU movement. Although there's much generally to be proud of, it's not all good news. There's a reason in 1989 we started a welcoming program. We realized we're not as welcoming as we need to be. This congregation is a part of that. Uh, Consider that in 1969, the year that the Stonewall Inn opened, two years before the uprising, the Unitarian Universalist Association took a survey of all Unitarian Universalists that showed that um, UUs at that time believed that homosexuality should, quote, be discouraged by education. But change was about to come. In July 1970, a year after Stonewall, uh, delegates of the UU General Assembly passed a resolution that a growing number of authorities on the subject now see homosexuality as an inevitable sociological phenomenon and not as a mental illness, and that there are Unitarian Universalists, clergy, and laity who are homosexuals or bisexuals, and all people are urged immediately to bring an end to all discrimination against homosexuals and homosexuality, bisexuals and bisexuality. And although words on a piece of paper did not end discrimination uh, within UU congregations, it was a significant move in the right direction. Fast forwarding a year, a week before the next year's General Assembly, there was an ad in the UU world. You get that for being a member of this congregation. If you're not getting it, let us know. Uh, It's our associational journal. And that ad in UU world said prominently, are you a gay UU? If you're gay, we want to hear from you. And at that 1971 General Assembly, two UU ministers wore buttons and placed themselves prominently, buttons that said, I'm gay, how about you? And they stood in front of a large sign that said, gay is groovy. And they passed out posters and flyers and cartoons and pamphlets. And by the end of the week, their UU gay caucus had grown from two of them to just, from just the two of them to 14 members. 
1971 was also the first year that the UUA released About Your Sexuality, AYS. Anybody take AYS back in the day? Any? All right, see a few hands. All right, we should talk. Uh, That was the first sex education program to affirm that gay sex was natural and should not be criminalized. We still have that curriculum today. It's, of course, revised. It's known as Our Whole Lives, or OWL, and it's widely regarded as a gold standard in lifespan sexuality education. Another year later, at the 1973 UU General Assembly, the UU Gay Caucus had grown from 14 members to 250 and two-thirds of the delegates of that assembly voted to create the unfortunately named Office of Gay Affairs. (laughs) Think about it. Yeah. Uh, It was soon changed to the Office of Gay Concerns. It took them a few months, but... uh, uh, This decision was quite uh, progressive at the time. It was actually not until um, a few months later in December of 73 that the American Psychiatric Association deleted the entry for, uh, for homosexuality from its diagnostic manual. And so separately from already employed UU ministers coming out of the closet, it was actually not until 1980 that two openly gay men were called to, do, to two different UU pulpits. It's one thing to say you believe in equality. It's another thing to give people a job, right? Uh, the first two openly lesbian UU ministers were called in 84 and 85, respectively. And again, as, uh, regarding the significance of those two calls in the early 80s, keep in mind that it was actually the next year, 1986, when the Supreme Court ruling Bowers versus Hardwick upheld the constitutionality of state laws criminalizing homosexual acts, even in private, between consenting adults. That case was the law of the land until 2003, and I'll conclude with a brief story about that Supreme Court decision. On June 26, 2003, which ironically was two days before the 34th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, attending a religion conference. As I was preparing to leave my room, I turned on the news and heard the Supreme Court's ruling of Lawrence versus Texas. Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing for a 6-3 majority, had struck down the sodomy law in Texas and by extension invalidated sodomy laws in 13 other states. One reason that news stopped me in my tracks is that I'd just spent the past three years attending seminary in Fort Worth, Texas at Bright Divinity School, serving as the graduate assistant all three years for that divinity school's first out gay professor who experienced uh, significant amounts of discrimination uh, during that time and after as well. So I was stunned to learn the news that the highest court in the land had just made same-sex sexual activity legal. As I made my way downstairs, I noticed noticed on the TV in the hotel lobby that Strom Thurmond had just died. That news was also stunning. I had spent the first 22 years of my life in South Carolina, uh, and for all 22 years of uh, all 22 of those years, Thurman had been my senator. Indeed, he left office six months before his death as the only senator to reach the age of 100 while still in office. As you may know, Thurman ran for president in 1948 as the state's rights um, Dixiecrat candidate. And in opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1957, he conducted the longest filibuster ever by a lone senator at 24 hours, 18 minutes in length, nonstop. And although I will not try to delve deeply into the psychological motivations behind Senator Thurmond's consistent support for racist and white supremacist legislation, I will note that six months after uh, Thurmond's death, the news broke that when he was 22, he had fathered a child with his family's 16-year-old African-American maid. 
Although Thurman never publicly acknowledged his daughter, he did pay for her education at a historically black university and passed money on to her for some time. So that's a, that's a complex situation there with uh, Senator Thurman. Even without knowing that final twist, I still remember the exact words that went through my mind this morning. Wow, the world can change. You can have legal gay sex in Texas and Strom Thurmond is dead. <laughs> so, I should add, as we say in South Carolina, bless his heart. So, and... In reading the historical records, it's clear that similar sentiments passed through the minds of uh, many people 50 years ago upon learning the news of the Stonewall uprisings. Wow, the world can change. We don't have to passively accept discrimination. Together, we can turn dreams into deeds. Together, we can work to build the world we dream about. There is much work to be done, both to advance the cause of liberty and equality and to resist those who are and are seeking to even more roll back the tide of progress. But we are lifted up on the shoulders of many courageous forebears who have come before us in acting for peace and justice. And I'm grateful to be on this journey with all of you. So there's a lot about this world that needs to change, and by all means, we need to work together to change the systems and the structures and the institutions, and also in the meantime, look for those places, as you hear me say from time to time, within your spheres of influence, where you can go ahead and make a difference. I'll give you just one final example of that. One of the great honors of my life was when I served in the, as a minister in Northeast Louisiana from 2003 to 2010. It's a very, very conservative part of the country, uh, if you're unaware of that. Uh, I could tell you more about that, but I'll, moving along. Uh, the, and what I was able to do there, for, one of the things I was able to do there for LGBT equality was to let it be known pretty publicly that I was willing to officiate at same sex. Um, and I called them marriages because they were marriages. Because I, I would tell people, I cannot sign your, you know, I cannot help you render and, you know, get a tax break from Caesar. Uh, but I can, uh, I can marry you uh, in a sacred ceremony and to affirm for them that their public declaration of love um, may before one another and their family and friends and in front of their religious community was deep and powerful and significant, uh, even without the government's stamp of approval. So as you um, go through this um, week, this day and this week and into the days to come, continue your journey with love. Look for the places where you can um, make love work. You know, as you heard, Dr. Cornel West you know, famously said, intimacy is what love looks in, like in private. Justice is what love looks like in public, right? So continue your journey with love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place, uh, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving. Mm-hmm.